morning, New Life. It's good to see all of you today. Uh, if you are new here, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Speaking of uh, new or newer, if you are uh, new to New Life or newer to, to New Life and you've never been to one of our uh, Journey 101 luncheons, I'd like to personally invite you to come out next Sunday. So we do these the first Sunday of every month at 1230 right after the second service. Upstairs, we provide lunch for you, childcare, etc. You just have to register for that. And so if you've been around a little while, but you've never been to one of our Journey 101 luncheons, would, uh, again, just invite you to go ahead and register for that today on our website, uh, the New Life app. Or if you prefer, you can go out to the lobby, go to the Next Steps table, and you can register there as well. And uh, we just spent about an hour eating together and uh, sharing with you where we feel like God is, is taking us together as a faith family called New Life uh, Community Church. So hope that you uh, will come out to that if you haven't been to one of those. And today is a big day for us because we're wrapping up uh, our mission series that we've been in all of the month of October. Uh, next week, we're going to launch into a brand new message series on the parables of Jesus. Uh, that series will, God willing, carry us through the end of the year. And uh, really excited about that series, so I'd encourage you to uh, be back next week. That's also a perfect time as we launch a new series uh, to invite a friend, a co-worker, a classmate, neighbor, uh, whatever. But I think it's going to be good. And as we get rolling here, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever taken a really long road trip before? Like, let's say, eight-plus hours. So, like, at least half of us, maybe more than half of us have been on a long road trip I can remember as, our, as a kid, our, our family would uh, take vacations, and uh, so we'd pack up the car, and we would usually uh, head for the beach. And I can remember as a little kid, um, man, a seven, eight-hour, ten-hour drive feels like an eternity. And so my sister and I would begin to ask uh, the question that every parent dreads most on a long trip, and that is, are we there yet? Are how much longer? And as, I kid, as a kid, I thought, man, those really long road trips were a really big uh, trial and tribulation for me. And then I had kids, and I realized that the ones that suffer most are not actually the kids. It's actually the parents who suffer most, right? So now I'm in that place where we have three kids, and so I get to hear when we go on vacation, Dad, how much longer? At least 400 times. Or, hey, Dad, I need to pee. Or, hey, Dad, she's on my side. Or, Dad, his leg is touching my leg. And if you're like me, you just get to that place where you're like, so help me, God. <laughs> Kid, I brought you into this world, and by God, I can take you out of this world. <laughs> I remember one specific time. We, uh, Cheryl and I just moved back um, from, from Asia and been back a, a little while in the States. And uh, so Haley, our oldest, was about two. And uh, then we had, Karis came along, and she was just a, a few weeks old. And at the time, my parents uh, vacationed uh, this gorgeous little place in, in South Florida uh, called Sanibel Island. And so they invited us to go on vacation with them. And since they were paying, we said yes. And we were young and broke. And, uh, and so we had a, a two-year-old and like a five-week-old or something like that. And word to the wise, don't ever take a long road trip with a newborn baby. That's always a bad idea. And uh, as we got into that road trip that typically takes 11 or 12 hours from Asheville down to South Florida, I realized that my infant would need to stop about every 30 minutes to, to, to eat. And so uh, that 11-hour trip turned into like a 15-hour trip. And about 10 or 11 hours in, the only thing that kept me from driving off a bridge was the picture in my mind of me sitting on a beach 
with white sand and a cool breeze blowing in my face and crystal blue water lapping the beach. See, oftentimes during the misery of the journey, the thing that gets you through is a picture of the final destination, right? So that's when you hand your kids the uh, Disney World pamphlet when you're driving down to Orlando, right? My, my kids like to look on our, our cell phones at the, the hotel or the Airbnb and the indoor pool or the outdoor pool or whatever as we, as we drive. See, seeing the end game helps us see the purpose in the actual journey. Well, the same thing is also true in our spiritual journeys. Life can be hard. This world can be cruel. The pace of our lives can seem overwhelming at times, and we can be crippled. And the pace of our lives can steal our joy and rob us of peace. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of our mission as followers of Jesus, right? Because we, have, we all have bills to pay. We all have cars to repair. We have kids or grandkids to raise. We have health concerns to overcome. And some days for me, I just feel like it's a win. If I can get two matching socks on my feet, much less live in light of this grand mission that God has invited me into. And so this morning, we're going to look at the destination. We're going to look at the end game. And my hope is as we see this destination, we will regain some clarity. Or maybe for some of us, for the first time, we will gain clarity. The fog will lift from our minds and we'll gain a passion for the reason that we're actually alive. Because this life, listen to me, is so much more than just paying bills and fixing cars and getting kids to soccer practice on time and hoping that we get a good report from the doctor this year. Life is all of those small kind of menial things, but it can be so much more than just those things. And so let's look at the destination this morning as fuel for the journey. If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up, turn it on on your device, head for Revelation chapter 5. That's where we're going to park this morning. If you're uh, not super familiar with the Bible, that's actually the last book in the Bible. This book was written by the Apostle John, who was perhaps uh, Jesus' best friend. He wrote several books in the New Testament. In fact, he spent years and years with Jesus, and so his uh, words certainly carry a lot of weight. Bible scholars believe that by the time John writes this book, he's an older man. He's likely writing as a prisoner on the island for criminals called uh, Patmos off the coast of Greece. That island is still there. You can visit it today. And on this island, as a prisoner for his faith in Jesus Christ, God gives the apostle John a vision, this incredible vision of the throne room of God and what eternity will look like. And it's pretty astonishing. And so uh, this will be on the screens for you as well. We're going to read all of chapter 5. Uh, it's not very long, just 14 verses. So Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the apostle John writing. He says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Man, can you imagine seeing this scene in heaven? Now, here's where I want to take us this morning in Revelation chapter 5. I want to show you the dilemma that presents itself in this particular vision to the Apostle John. I want to show you a solution for that dilemma, and then I want to show you what our appropriate response is. So here's the dilemma, and it's a huge one. Now, there's some debate among scholars about the contents of this heavenly scroll. Does it contain all of human history? Is it... God's final judgment on evil? Is it God's plan to kind of consummate his kingdom and bring in the second coming of Christ? Does the scroll perhaps contain the names of all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ? And I don't know for certain what was in that scroll, but here's what I think. I think for us to really understand what we're reading, we have to understand something about ancient Hebrew culture. Because in ancient times, when someone owed a debt, that they had no way to pay, their debt would be written down on a scroll and it would be sealed with these wax seals with the conditions written on the outside of the scroll for the debt repayment. We see this in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And if you could not repay your debt, you would be thrown into prison. Now, do you see the dilemma there, right? You, you owe a debt, you have not enough money or resources to pay for it, now you're in prison with no way to earn money to buy your way out. It really is kind of a hopeless situation. However, there was a clause in that ancient Hebrew culture, a loophole, if you will, something called the kinsman redeemer. We see this in Leviticus chapter 25, the book of Ruth, other places as well. Now, the kinsman redeemer had to be a blood relative, And it had to be somebody who could pay your debt, not in part, but in full. And in that case, you would be released and your debt would be forgiven. 
So if this blood relative shows up, he pays all of your debt on your behalf, the authorities would take your scroll of your legal debt, they would break the seals apart, and they would mark on it paid in full, and now you would be set free. And so when John is watching this dramatic scene in heaven unfold, I think John would have been thinking back, perhaps all the way back to the Garden of Eden, perhaps all the way back to Adam and Eve, who, as we studied a few weeks ago, committed treason against God, and the fact that we have all been born slaves to sin since that fall in the garden so many years ago. We all have a debt that we can't repay. Every single one of us in this room this morning is a sinner and a rebel. People that have sinned and rebelled against a perfect and holy God. We are all slaves to sin. We all stand condemned. And so John knows that whatever is in this scroll holds the key to what we lost in the garden all those years ago. That this document, in some sense, speaks to our debt. That if somebody can pay, if a kinsman redeemer shows up, will free us and usher in the new kingdom of God with a new heavens and new earth, like this time and place where there will be no more suffering, There'd be no more pain, no more tears, no more death. And John, as he's watching this unfold with this knowledge of the Hebrew culture, he's got to be thinking, man, there's got to be somebody who can open up this scroll. Or we are all condemned. We all have no hope. Like somebody, please show up and release us and free us. And then out of the throngs of thousands and myriads of angels, John tells us a champion angel emerges. John calls it a strong angel. And this angel emerges from the crowd of angels and he shouts, who is worthy to open the scroll? In other words, who can redeem these slaves? Is there a kinsman redeemer who can forgive these rebels and pay their debt? Is there one who can set free a a world that's been ravaged by sin and evil and death? Is there one who can make it all new and who can right every wrong and so we can almost picture the apostle john picturing in his mind every man every woman every little boy every little girl who has ever lived and he's looking around like man there's there's got to be somebody there's got to be somebody that can open these seals there's got to be somebody that can reverse the curse there has to be somebody that can provide some hope somebody that can forgive this massive debt that we all owe but none of us can pay john knows what's at stake here And so we can almost picture him looking around just going like, come on, come on, come on. There's got to be someone who can set us free and make things right. And yet there's just silence. There's no one who emerges. None of the angels can open the scroll. None of the people in heaven can open the seals. And John, who by this point in his life is this grizzled veteran of the faith who historians tell us had been tortured for his faith, had been boiled in oil and and survived it. He had seen almost all of his friends at this point in time tortured and killed for loving Jesus. John has lived a lot. He has seen a lot. He's a tough guy. And John says he begins to weep loudly. He's crushed as he pictures 
maybe the people that he loves most, as he pictures maybe the pain of all humanity, and there is no one who can fix it, it seems. This is the dilemma of heaven. This is the dilemma of Revelation chapter 5, and John is crushed by it. There is no redeemer. There is no one who can pay the debt. There is no one to set rebels and sinners free. No one who can restore creation back to perfection. And listen to me, this dilemma isn't just something that's kind of far off and ethereal that we read about in Revelation chapter 5. This is a personal dilemma that belongs to each and every one of us. And so this is truth number one this morning. No matter who you are, where you come from, you have a great dilemma. You do. This is not just something that we read about in the book of Revelation. You have a great dilemma, and here's why. Because you owe a great debt. You see, you are a rebel. You and I, all of us in the room, we are, we are sinners who have committed treason against the very God who created us and loves us so much that he's willing to give himself to rescue us. We are all sin-sick. And we all stand guilty before a perfect and holy God. We have a debt that we cannot repay. You have a debt that you have no way to pay back. And I want you to understand this this morning because this is important. Religion will not get you out of this dilemma, friend. Being a, a good little church boy or a good little church girl will not fix this for you. Being a good person will not get you out of this. Doing enough good deeds will not save you from this. You and I are completely hopeless to save ourselves. I want you to feel the, the weight of what John was feeling at that moment. Total darkness. No hope. No light at the end of the tunnel. Only guilt, shame, on death row, awaiting execution, and there is no Savior to rescue us. Can you feel the weight of what John would have been feeling in Revelation chapter 5? But then there's a plot twist that comes in verse 5. Look at this. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the elders runs up to, to John as he's on the floor of the throne room of heaven just weeping. He goes, John, 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 stop crying, bro. Look up. And we see John kind of lifts his head and he wipes the tears out of his face. And the elder goes, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, the conqueror, Jesus is here, and he will open that scroll. And you can kind of picture the throne room of heaven just erupting as Jesus the conqueror boldly strides towards the throne, and he takes that scroll that he purchased with his own blood. And here's what I want you to see here. God has made a way for you out of your dilemma. Though you and I are rebels who deserve death and hell and nothing less, God in his great love and his endless mercy has provided a kinsman redeemer to pay our debt that we could never pay and to set us free from our prison of sin, death, and hell. 
See, we all have a dilemma because we all have a debt that we cannot pay. But God has provided a way. So here's truth number two. Jesus is your solution. Now, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your background is or where you're coming from this morning. I don't know what the biggest obstacle in your life is today in this moment. I don't know what you're going through, but this is what I do know. Jesus is your answer. I do know that. And hear me say this clearly because our culture gets this all twisted. I want you to hear me say this clearly. Jesus is not a solution. Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the solution. He is the hope of every man, woman, girl, and boy on this planet today because no one else is worthy because no one else has paid the price to redeem you, to cleanse you, to restore you to the Father. He is the one. He is the only one who can open the scroll of your debt and mark it as paid in full because he paid the price to redeem you with his own blood. I want you to listen to the song that they begin to sing when they see Jesus the conqueror walk into this scene. I want you to listen to what they begin to sing in verse 9. It says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed, or your translation may say, purchased. You purchased people. And I want to pause right there just for a moment. I want to say, Christian, I want you to let this settle into your soul and your heart this morning. God has purchased you. And let that truth just settle into your heart for a minute. Jesus bought you with his own blood. Like you are not your own. You have a new life and you have a new heart. And you have a new destiny now. John says, they're singing this song, by your blood you ransomed people for God. From where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads of thousands of that just picture this scene of a sea of angels singing at the top of their lungs you can't even count them saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory forever and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped don't miss this when we see clearly what Jesus has done for us the only appropriate response is worship where we clearly see our sin and we see our debt that we could never work off or pay off and then we look at Jesus and we see what he's done on our behalf and the only appropriate response is to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain for me. Worthy is the one who forgives me and washes me and cleanses me with his blood. The one who blots out all of my sins and declares me innocent before the Father. He calls me righteous. He calls me a son or a daughter. Worthy is that lamb. But I want you to notice something else in this text. Jesus 
didn't just die to purchase you. See, a lot of us stop right there and we teach our kids songs. And it's right and it's good to teach our kids that Jesus loves them and that he came for them and that he died for them. That is all right and proper and that is good. But the atonement of Jesus Christ extends beyond our salvation. See, John says that Jesus shed his blood specifically to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that that Greek word that that Jesus and John used for nation is the Greek word ethne. That's where we get our word ethnicity or ethnicities. It's this idea of people groups. So here's what I want you to see. According to the the best research out there, according to the best myth theologists that we have access to out there right now, there are approximately in the world 6,000 distinct people groups that are unreached. 6,000, not people, people groups with thousands, tens of thousands, some of them millions of people with little to no access to the good news that there's a God in heaven who loves them and who has made a way for them through Jesus to experience hope in this life and joy in the next life. Entire generations of little boys and little girls who are born and they grow up and they get married and they raise their families and they grow old and they die without ever hearing one single time. And these 6,000 people groups comprise around 3 billion people. That's billion with a B. 3 billion people. And these are not just numbers. These are real people with real names and real faces and real stories and real hopes and dreams who are living their entire lives and they're dying and they're stepping into a Christless eternity. And church, I want you to hear me say this. That is not okay. That is not okay. I'm not okay with that. And if you're here and you love Jesus this morning, you can't be okay with that. Christian, let me, let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you wept like the Apostle John over those who are living and dying in hopelessness? When's the last time your heart was stirred for those people? When's the last time your heart was even moved for those who are living and dying with no hope in this life or the one to come? Jesus died to redeem people from every ethnic. His command to us in Matthew 28, what's known as the Great Commission, is a command not just to make disciples wherever we are, it's specifically to make disciples of all nations, of all ethne, of all people groups. Beloved, if we believe that this book is true, if we believe that these words from John, if we believe these words from Jesus in Matthew 28 are true, that if we believe that Jesus really did die to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, then we will go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is our ultimate mission. This is why we are alive as followers of Jesus, to love God and love one another as we make disciples of all ethne of all people groups on this planet because we have a Savior who is worthy of the worship of all peoples in all places. 
In Matthew 24, you don't have to turn there. I want to show you this. Jesus was um, teaching his disciples about um, the end times. And I want, I just, this is fascinating. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. He says this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all, all nations, all ethne, and then the end will come. Do you catch that? Jesus just said he will return when his gospel has been proclaimed to all the peoples of the earth. You want Jesus to come back? Let's get to work, brother. Let's get to work, sister. You say, Chris, are you, are you saying that Jesus couldn't come back tonight? Are you saying that, Chris, are you, are you saying that Jesus couldn't, couldn't come back tomorrow? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying at all because we don't know how God calculates or measures things like unreached people groups or ethne. But here's what I do know. Jesus hasn't yet returned, and so our work is not yet done. I love the way uh, George Ladd puts it, and he writes, and this, this quote will be on the screen for you. Ladd says, how are we to know when the mission is completed? How close are we to the accomplishment of the task? Which countries have been evangelized and which have not? How close are we to the end? I answer, I do not know. God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on the defining of the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. Church, here's the third truth that I want to highlight for you. Number three, Christian, our mission is not yet complete. Our mission is not yet complete. How do I know? Jesus hasn't returned yet. He told us that when his gospel is proclaimed to all the people groups, when he has worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he will return. That hasn't happened yet, and so our mission is incomplete. But what if, church, just, just dream with me for a minute here. What if, what if our generation was the one that completed the mission? What if, in, what if in our lifetime we saw people from every single people group hear and respond to the gospel? What, what if in our lifetime God consummated his kingdom with the return of Jesus? What if we got to be a part of seeing Jesus return and make all things right and make all things new? Wouldn't that be amazing? But here's my concern and here's my fear for, for many, maybe even most churches in America today, and here's, here's my concern. For most of us, we are not passionate about God's passion. We're not. We are passionate, but oftentimes for the wrong things. We are passionate for our comfort. We are passionate for our preferences. We love a church as long as it's not too hot or too cold in the worship center on Sunday morning. We love a church as long as the worship music gives us goosebumps every Sunday morning, man. We're happy with the church as long as our kids are entertained by the kids' ministry or the youth ministry. Oh, we're passionate, all right, but we're passionate for our preferences, 
which sometimes makes me wonder, who are we really worshiping? Are we worshiping God or are we worshiping ourselves? Have you ever thought about how absurd it is that many of us, and I've been guilty of this too, many of us will walk out of a worship gathering like this one and we'll go, eh, that didn't really, didn't really do anything for me today. I didn't get, didn't get the goosebumps. The guy talked for too long. She was off pitch. The drums were too loud. Have we ever considered that worship isn't about you at all? It's not for you. It's not about you. It's not about me. And we wonder why God doesn't pour out his power on our churches and make us effective in our cities. And we ask questions like, man, well, how come God doesn't do things now like he did in the Bible times? Or how come God isn't doing stuff in our churches like we're hearing about in, in churches all over the world, in places like Iran and, and, and Africa and the Middle East? And here's what I've come to believe, and I think you can write this down, believer, and you can take this to the bank, and it's so important, I'm going to put it on the screens for you. We will never experience the power of God apart from the passion of God. Church, God doesn't bless our passions. He blesses his passion. And I am convinced that when we align fully with his passion and his mission, he will pour out his power on us in ways that we can't even fathom. It will blow our minds. So what are we to do in light of all of this? I want to give you three ways that you can respond to this. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you to respond in at least one of these three ways. Okay, at least one, that's the challenge. If you can do two, Pastor Mike will let you sing on the worship team at some point. If you can do all three, you'll get an extra gold star in heaven, all right? So it's a good deal. Not really, you're getting none of that, but it still would be awesome if you could do two or three of these things. But here's a challenge, at least, at least one. So three ways that we can respond to God's global call of missions. Number one, believer, pray relentlessly. Now, church family, hear me say this. Our, for most of us, our prayer lives, and I'm starting with myself, for most of us, our prayer lives are really, really flimsy. Prayer is one of the most effective weapons in God's kingdom. I don't understand why, but God is moved by the prayers of his people. He loves the prayers of his people. Prayer is spiritual currency in God's kingdom. I want you to look back at verse 8. This is what it says. And when he had taken, that's Jesus. When Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. Don't just skip over that. Do you want to know where your prayers are right now at this moment, believer? Do you want to know if your prayers matter, if they count? John says our prayers right now are in the throne room of God, burning like an incense, a beautiful aroma filling the throne room of God. The fact that we get to be a part of this picture in Revelation 5 in the throne room of God even right now, that God is aware of our prayers, that God is pleased by our prayers, that he loves our prayers, he's moved by our prayers. This should drive us to our knees, church. We should become a people of relentless prayer. Pray for the nations. Pray that God would raise up and that he would send people out to them. 
Pray that these unreached peoples would see the beauty of Jesus and they would worship him. Your prayers, believer, matter. And so pray, pray relentlessly. There's a second way that you can respond to what we've seen in Revelation chapter five and really the whole month of October. Number two, give sacrificially. Listen, unreached peoples are unreached for a reason. All the easy places are already taken. These people are unreached because they're hard to get to. They're expensive to get to. Many of them don't want us to get to them. One of our seven big dreams as a church is to engage at least one unreached people group in the next few years and to plant churches there that can begin to reach their own people in these hard-to-reach places. And listen to me, that is not going to be cheap. We are hoping to send many of you there on short-term, one- to two-week trips. And when you go, when you say, yes, I will go, we want to help you get there. We want to help you financially when you go. I've read, I read just this week, the average American Christian gives around 2% of their income to their local church. And I'm telling you, that is not going to get it done. That is not going to get it done. Completing the Great Commission is not going to be cheap. It's going to require our time. It's going to require our talent. It's going to require us sending out some of our best people. And yes, it's going to require us to sacrifice financially together for the sake of the unreached. In just a few minutes, we're going to come to the tables, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we're asking you, if you're a part of the New Life family, to sacrificially give an offering or to make a pledge for next year so that we can start going to these places and partnering with local pastors and missionaries as we take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to all the peoples. And listen to me, it's going to take all of us and so give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. Here's number three. The third way you can respond to this is to go. Is to go in confidence. Now, I understand, listen, not everybody is going to be called to go globally. I get that, like, all of us aren't going to get the same call, and, man, we're all called to Uzbekistan or something like that. We're not going to charter two planes and all of us move and start new life of Uzbekistan. Although that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? But that's probably not going to happen. And I get that. That's okay. Maybe God's going to call you to be a light here in Asheville and serve with some of our local mission partners or with your neighbors, with your classmates, with your coworkers. And that's awesome. We will celebrate all of that. Maybe God will call you to be a prayer or be a prayer warrior on our behalf. You'd pray for these 6,000 unreached people groups. Maybe you'll be a sender financially. You say, man, I can't go, but God has blessed me with material wealth. So I'm going I'm to send other people. I'm going to finance other people. And we'll celebrate that too. But listen to me, God will call some of us to go. And I'm praying that he's gonna call many of us to go. My prayer is that many of you would go with us on short-term trips in 2020. Our staff, we just prayed this last week. Our staff is praying that some of you would go for a midterm Meaning that you would say, yeah, I'll give a year. Yeah, I'll give two years. Yeah, I'll give three years. Maybe there's a change in a different season of life. Maybe you're graduating from high school. Maybe you're graduating from college. Maybe you're about to step into retirement. You're gonna have freedom and flexibility. And you'd say, yeah, I'm gonna give, I'll give a year. 
of my life to this great global mission. I'll give two years of my life. That's what Cheryl and I did. After school, we spent two and a half years in Indonesia, some of the best years of our life. So our prayer is that some of you would say, yes, we're gonna go. We're not just gonna go for a week. We're gonna go for a year. We're gonna go for two years. And then our prayer is that some of you would actually go long-term. Maybe some of you who are teachers or doctors or engineers or whatever you do, that, that some of you would just say, you know what, I can do this, what I'm doing now, in another place, in a hard-to-reach place. I can leverage my skills in a unique way to reach the unreached. See, because we want New Life to become a church that's not known for our seeding capacity. We want New Life to become the church that's known for our sending capacity that we're sending people out into our neighborhoods and into our city and into different cities in our nation and all the way to the unreached peoples of this world. And let me say this. It seems to me that it's fear that keeps many of us from going. It's fear. We're scared. A lot of us are scared of other cultures. We're scared of flying. We're scared of dying. We're scared of spending money. We're scared of spicy foods. We are just a fearful, fear-saturated people. And I just want you to know that the life, for, for most of us, the life that God has for us, like the good life that we all desire and want, like that life lives on the other side of fear. Christian, understand that you are immortal until God is ready to call you home. And when he is ready to call you home, there ain't nothing you can do to stop it. So let's go. Let's go where God leads. Let's go confidently and fearlessly. Church, would you bow your heads with me as the band comes? I, here, here's what I think is happening. As I look across the global landscape and I, I hear from my colleagues what's happening in places like Iran and Africa and China and Afghanistan and all these other places. I, I think what God is doing right now in this moment in 2019 is he's beginning to raise up an end times army. Not a violent army, but an army of people who are willing to just put it all on the line to see the great commission of Jesus accomplished in our generation. Friend, God is writing a story. Believer, God is writing a story. Will you take your place in that story? Will you play your part? Here's what I want us to do as we prepare in just a moment to come to the tables. I want us to carve out just a minute to pray. And the room is just gonna go silent as the band plays and we're gonna have a little bit of time just to pray. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I just want you to understand this, this is your time. This is your time to pray out in your own words to God and just ask God to cleanse you, ask God to forgive you of your sin. Ask him to give you a new life in Jesus. Listen, if you want a real dynamic relationship with your creator, I want you to know that can begin today, like this morning, with a simple prayer. And if you pray that prayer in just a minute, then let us know. Come talk to us. Fill it out on your card. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're already, you're already in, man. You're, you're bought in. You love Jesus. You're following Jesus to the best of your ability. Here's, here's the prayer I want you to pray, believer. Here it is. It's really simple. God, what is my role in this? 
I know I have a role. What is it? What is my role in all of this? And seeing peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around your throne, worshiping you forever. That is your mission. That is the end game. God said, what is, what is my role as your son, as your daughter, in seeing your mission accomplished? God, how can I reprioritize my life? How can I reprioritize my time and my money? How can I get more involved in praying and giving and going? So believer, just ask God with an open mind what he wants you to do and then make a commitment to do it. So let's pray just right where you are for just a minute and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. You pray right where you are. You ask God what he wants you to do. have created us for so much more than what most of us give our lives away to. God, help us to see beyond the fog of our circumstances, whatever they are, to the incredible mission that you've invited us into. God, help us to see that we're a part of a great big family that will one day include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God, give us a passion for what you're passionate about. God, align us with your heartbeat. God, give us courage to dream big, to believe big, and to take big risks in your kingdom, God. We pray it all in the name that is worthy of our praise, worthy of our lives, the name of the Lamb who was slain on our behalf, the name of Jesus.